Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. And the topics discussed are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. I'm not Justin Lee Burke. I am Chris the Chew Man Chew, and I'm joined tonight by our producers, our super producer, Dr. Jessica Hain. Hey, Jess. Hey, how's it going? And a surprise producer, Dr. Becca Raymond Colker. How are you doing? What up? I'm, I'm great. <laughs> Happy to be here. Awesome. And we have a special episode for you tonight as we discuss the highlights from PHM, or Pediatric Hospital Medicine 2021 Conference. We have uh, several producers here, as you, as you heard. And we have a special guest host, Dr. Tony Tarchichi. First, let's remind you what the show is about, Becca. We are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring clinical pearls, practice-changing knowledge, and answering lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. We have a fantastic conversation with our Cribsiders team and guest host, Dr. Tony Tarchichi, tonight. Dr. Tarchichi is a pediatric hospitalist and the Pediatric Hospital Medicine Fellowship Director at UPMC Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh in the Paul C. Gaffney Division of Pediatric Hospital Medicine. He's also an Associate Professor of Pediatrics in the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine in the Department of Pediatrics. In 2016, he created the PHM from Pittsburgh podcast, which he still hosts. It's a continuing medical education podcast for healthcare professionals who take care of children in the inpatient setting. His major focus of research is on podcasting as a source of medical education. And tonight, we are going to chat about our favorite highlights from the PHM conference, including plenary sessions about takeaway pearls on how to be an anti-racist, the Choosing Wisely campaign, some FOMO sessions, and Fauci. Hope everyone enjoys these highlights. On to the show. Hello, Dr. Tarchichi. Is it okay if I call you Tony? Because I know I'm going to screw this up multiple times. That's totally fine. As long as I can call you Chris, you can call me Tony. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for coming on the show. And so since this is the first time on our show, uh, we sort of like to do some warm-up questions. And the first one is just to help people know you a little better. Can you give us sort of a one-liner to describe yourself? Sure. First, thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, So I guess my one-liner is I'm a husband and father of three wonderful kids, I also happen to be a pediatric hospitalist and a podcaster. And something a little fun about me, I enjoy strength training specifically. So exercising, but specifically strength training. I heard you do a little yoga too. (laughs) I do a little yoga. I've been doing yoga for two years. And I was actually, I did the morning yoga session at PHM uh, for about 15, 20 minutes before I went in the room and talked with you for medical education, Chris. And it was very good. I'll definitely need to try to check that out in the future or maybe in person, hopefully next time. Mm-hmm. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Um, so, Tony, what is a book that every physician should read and we should all add to our our uh, stack of books right next to our bed? So I have two books I'm currently reading now. Uh, one, I always have an audio book in the car. Uh, and that one uh, is part of a book club I'm in in our division, The Social Transformation of American Medicine. And that's a dense book. And the one that's fun that I'm reading that I'm kind of enjoying is The Little Book of Common Sense Investing by John Bogle. So I don't know if that's one everyone should read, but I think they're both really good. Awesome. Great suggestions. Yeah. Uh, Tony, a question we like to ask on the show is, what is your favorite failure and what did you learn from it? 
That's such a great question. Um, I don't know about my favorite. I'll tell you my most recent failure in the beginning of the pandemic. I, I, I wanted to do something for me because of all the stress the pandemic brought on everybody and, and get my kids kind of involved. And I said, well, maybe I'll try training for a local strongman competition. And my division teased me mercilessly about this. But I did. I began training uh, to get strong enough to be able to enter a strongman competition. And then I realized why people don't do this at 40 years old, because I got hurt twice doing it. And my wife basically said, this is ridiculous. Just exercise. Stop trying to do it. So I, I did. And I, you know, did various other challenges just for fun, but I completely failed at that. There, I, did, I didn't get strong enough at all to get into the competition. So that's a fun one. But failures, I think, happen all the time, and I think they help us grow. So I love that question. I don't even think I really know what a strong man is, but now I'm I'm definitely going to Google it after this. <laughs> after this. You've probably um, seen them at three o'clock in the morning on ESPN. They have like 1984 strongman competitions. They're they're super fun. I think this this might come as a surprise to you, but I'm not usually watching ESPN at three in the morning. <laughs> Um, but we're just, we're just getting to know each other. So, um, (laughs) I, so I don't know, um, because we're just getting to know each other. I, I don't know if you know this, Tony, but I just started intern year. I'm a med peds intern. And so I'm, you know, trying to get as much advice as possible. And, um, many of our show listeners are as well. And I was wondering if you could share what the best advice you ever received as a learner was, or as a teacher, or just in your career. That's so I'm also MedPeace trained, Becca, so welcome to the club. Um, and I Thank will you. say the best advice I ever got was just to do what you're passionate about. Do what makes you happy because you're going to be doing it for a long time. And if you don't enjoy your work, you're going to be miserable. And that stuck with me. And I've always done research or things that I very much am interested in and the work that I'm interested in. So that's the best advice I've ever gotten and I could ever give. Awesome. Thanks so much. All right. Well, I think it's about time that we start getting into um, our discussion. Jess, you want to take it away? Sure. Uh, So I think before we get into all the conference content, um, I think we need to know a little bit more from you, Tony, about your, your podcast, PHM from Pittsburgh. You started this back in 2016, um, so I'm sure you've learned a lot over the years and maybe even have some advice for us. So first of all, do you want to just tell us a little more about your podcast? Sure. I I appreciate the kind words. I knew nothing when I started the podcast uh, on how to do any of this. So it was 2016. PHM was just decided there was going to be a subspecialty. I think the American Board of Medical Specialties were about to pass it. And I said, oh, no, I have to study for another board exam, honestly. And so I thought, how am I going to do that? I said, there's probably a podcast on this topic that I can listen to in the car and just learn as I go. And I looked and there was not. And then I had the thought, and this is a truth thought, uh, well, I can make one. How hard could this be? And so that's what started the whole road down me making a podcast. And I learned everything from the editing uh, to recording, and I made every mistake possible along the way to learn about all this. Uh, so it is a, it's a continuing medical education podcast. The way we make it is it's a deep dive. So we go into the literature, we review articles, we review the methodology of the articles, what the objective was, we'll kind of look into statistics ask answering a specific question or a specific subtopic and we'll always bring on an expert guest because if I misinterpret something I want someone there to say you're wrong this is what that's supposed to mean and then there's it's like your podcast it's a lot of nice dialogue it's a lot of back and forth but it's on a it's on a specific subspecialty within pediatrics so all pediatric hospital medicine topics but sometimes 
there is naturally crossover. When we did uh, bronchiolitis or when we've done pneumonia, there's clear crossover with the outpatient side as well. And we try to release an episode every four to six weeks. Um, but this last year, I got busy and we had missed four months or so of releasing any episodes. And our goal is to eventually cover all of the American Board of Pediatrics content specifications for pediatric hospital medicine. But we got sidetracked with things like COVID and enterovirus D68. And, you know, when as life throws things at us, we try to adapt. That's a quick awesome. summary of it. And actually, you, you did like two episodes just covering some highlights from PHM this year, right? Yes, we were fortunate enough, but in Seattle in 2019 and this year, to be one of the podcasters for the PHM conference. So we did initial episode with the conference organizers, those who were the chairs of the committee, just kind of talking about how it's different this year in the beginning. And then we did two episodes on Wednesday and Thursday, uh, highlights, what people liked from that day, what they really want, happy they went to, uh, and quick little episodes. But it's it's nice for people who can't make it to see what they missed out on. And for this year, anyone didn't make it can easily order it and then watch it because it's all virtual and recorded, which is nice. Awesome. So after doing all these highlights with other people, and now you're on with us doing highlights with us. So I really want to thank you for, for coming on. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thank you guys for having me. So what are some of your favorite takeaways from this conference then? I have to tell you, this I loved the plenaries for this conference a lot. I really enjoyed it. The first day... They had Dr., and I'm going to mispronounce his name, and if he's listening, I sincerely apologize. Uh, Dr. Ilhan Almareff, I believe, if anyone knows how to say his name correctly, please correct me, but it's Dr. Ilhan Alhadef. But he's, he's a physician down in Florida who had a terrible tragedy happen to him and his family due to gun violence in, I think, Marjorie Stone Douglas, but one of the unfortunate school shootings. And he was so open and honest about it in terms of how it affected him, how it affected his family. Uh, how he how he lost empathy for a while, how he struggled through that tragedy. And then through what I think is superhuman resilience, him and his family made something good come out of that tragedy. Uh, and he talks about, he talked about it with such composure and grace. There wasn't a dry eye in the house. And I absolutely, I think it was the best plenary I've ever heard anywhere ever. And I just absolutely loved it. Along with, and then once you got past that, because that's that was a tearjerker. Uh, there was a number of others highlighted for me at least by Doctor uh, Doctors Fauci and Doctor Beers, the chair, the president of the AAP, Doctor Beers and Doctor Fauci, who needs no introduction. They were there and talked with us, and they answered questions. So people got to write in whatever questions they wanted. We asked them clearly about COVID and the Delta variant and the Lambda variant. They were asked about this weird summer we're having where all the winter viruses are making a super strong comeback. And my favorite part of that was Fauci was like, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> that was of all the things. He was like, I, I, we don't know, which is the most honest answer because no one has any idea why this is happening. And if he tells you, I don't know, then nobody knows. And we asked him, you know, about vaccinations and, and the side effects and how this whole process goes in. And he was gracious with his time. Dr. Beer was great, gracious with her time. Along with that, we had the structural racism plenary with uh, Dr. Nathan Shamillo, which was excellent. And then we had the, there was the new clinical guideline that came out a week before the conference on the febrile infants less than 60 days old, which has been, I mean, we've been waiting for this guideline for, I don't know, I'd say a couple years. Every year there, everyone says, oh, it's going to come out this fall. Oh, it's going to come out this fall. And it was finally out. And for us, 
it really changes a lot because they're, they're changing the age structures that we look at kids now because now you have to split them up at under 21 days and over 21 days. Whether or not you need to do an LP now is more of a question than it ever used to be, especially with some of our inflammatory markers and, of course, the vaccinations that have decreased uh, meningitis. And then even the, U, even the UA, it used to be the UA, we would do a cath specimen and that was that. You get the UA and the urine culture at the same time. And now you can do a bag just to decrease the amount of catheterizations, which is invasive, that you're doing on the children. And if the bag specimen's positive, then you got to do a cath specimen. So it changes a fair bit. And we were excited about it because somebody were going to explain it. So then, you know, we're going to take that back to our institution. And most people are doing the same thing, kind of adjusting their clinical effectiveness guidelines. And then um, the last plenary, Dr. Julie Silver. Uh, accelerating patient care and healthcare workforce diversity and inclusion. She was, I mean, she was great. It was an excellent talk. She, a lot of the literature, it's rare when you have a plenary speaker who was involved in most of the literature and whatever it is you're talking about. And she was, because it's not a field that classically has received a lot of funding and she has been involved with, and then she even talked about that, how she had to pay for her own research assistant to help her so she could have more time to be home. She talked about how, it, like, you know, how being a woman in medicine and allyship and gender equity could help and, and how there is inequities currently in pediatrics, even in PHM. And the research, she, what I liked was she talked about all the data. She gave hard and fast numbers. And then she talked about it from a practical aspect from her life and what she's done. She gave kind of both sides of it, which it's rare that someone's able to do that well. Usually they can do the research well or the practical side well, but to marry the two as well as she did, I thought was wonderful. Let's see. What else did I like? Oh, beers. And how, how great was that name with Beers with Fauci? Yeah, beers with Fauci. Great... <laughs> I loved it. I loved that. that yeah. a great name. <laughs> I'm just talking and talking. If you guys don't stop me, I will keep going because I thought it was a great conference. Um, and one of the workshops I went to that I thought was, and I've heard this workshop before and it never... Well, let's talk about PHM Stories. PHM Stories was the first time this happened this year, where we had people write in whatever story they wanted to that was, um, you know, after the year we had, after 2020, where so many things happened for, to people that were negatives, whether it's they lost a loved one, uh, mental health issues, just being inside all day, being separated from your family, all of that. We gave people an opportunity if they wanted to tell a story that was meaningful to them, to tell it. And people responded. I mean, there was stories of racism that happened to physicians. There were stories of patients that affected positions, of tragedies that occurred to people. And they were open about how it made them feel and open about how they rose above it or how they're still dealing with it. And it's such a humanizing thing because all of us go through struggles. Like you guys asked me, failures. All of us have failures. All of us have struggles. And to be able to talk about it openly, instead of making everything look like we're just great and our lives are super duper, really, first of all, it makes people relate to you because everyone has these trust struggles. And B, it gives people who may need it at the time hope. Other people have been through it. They've gotten through it. You'll get through it too. And I thought that was, and it was moving. That's another one where it was hard not to get choked up watching it. I've never needed a box of tissues for a conference before, but this was the conference. Awesome. Um, awesome. I'll, let, I'll let you guys talk for a bit. So let, let's unpack a couple of those highlights that you brought, because I, I do want to talk about some of those. Yeah. So first is the, the, the opening plenary, which really was talking about leading through adversity, because Dr. Aldehef, um, I'm also not quite sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly, you know, he experienced, um, unfortunately, death of a loved one because of school shooting. And they started this, uh, 
nonprofit. I think it's called makeourschoolsafe.org. Um, and it's just, and, and his story, and he started off the story saying it's okay to cry. And I think, I think it was much different because we were all able to, to listen to this in most of us in the privacy of our offices or our home offices or whatnot. And um, it, it was very moving. And I, I think tied to all this was the PHM stories, which you just talked about. You know, I, I watched quite a few of the PHM stories, unfortunately, because, you know, my, my day job didn't allow me to always stick around for the entire conference. It was hard, but had a, that very strong, you know, is that area of narrative medicine that had like a nocturnus vibe, you know, that uh, with the COVID stories and, and Black Lives and Medicine, you know, these are all the things that are sort of tying us together, the, the humanistic traits of us. So, and so those are just a couple of things I want to talk about. Um, the Fibril Infant stuff, I think we have an episode probably coming out for, for us too. Um, yeah, so I would, I would encourage everyone to sort of ca- catch both of our episodes for that. So I don't know, Becca, Jess, you guys have any thoughts on the highlights that, uh, that Tony was talking about? Yeah, well, I have to put in a, a, a plug for um, another episode that the Curbsiders has coming out. You mentioned the top 10, um, well, we've heard it's the top 10-ish articles because there were actually more than 10 uh, in pediatric hospital medicine. And and so we actually uh, were able to sit down with Dr. Morrison and Dr. Echelano and chat a little bit about their process of how they picked these articles, um, especially amidst such a tough year. Um, and then kind of some of the take home from each of those articles. So I would definitely encourage our listeners to, to check that out. And, um, you know, we may touch on it a little bit during this episode, but that, that episode will definitely go more in depth into the top articles in pediatric hospital medicine this year. Becca, did you have any thoughts? I think I mostly caught some of the, the end, tail end of the conference. So I didn't, I didn't actually sit in on any of those um, particular, I was in my my ed rotation (laughs) very busy seeing all of the all of the respiratory illnesses oh my goodness i it's been a really interesting summer actually just to kind of touch on that i i I was working that night during the beers with fauci talk so i was really sad to miss that one that's one of my fomo ones but i love that takeaway of fauci just being like we don't know what's going on (laughs) like that's amazing like because i have been i was in the picu last month for my first month of intern year and i'm in the peds ER right now. And it's just been one bronchiolitis after another, so much RSV. And, you know, everyone's just like, it feels like winter. And I was just reflecting how like this time last year, I did my pediatric sub-I hospital, like just general hospital wards. And there was like hardly any sort of medical patients. It was primarily people hospitalized awaiting psychiatric placement. And so it's just a really one way of saying it is interesting. <laughs> Another way is, is kind of like overwhelming or, or scary or confusing, but it's a really interesting season. Um, and so it's it's nice that there was time to sort of process that with the expert in our country. It's awesome. I have to say, I loved, you know, one of my favorite quotes from Dr. Fauci from that session was, um, you know, he said, if I were a virus this summer, I would just be confused. He was just so humble about, um, you know, there is a lot we know, um, but there's a lot that we don't and, and a lot that we're still figuring out. And I just really appreciated his his transparency and honesty. It's a crazy winter. It's a crazy summer. It feels like winter. And all of our new interns, such as yourself, are getting an amazing experience now because come October-ish, everyone's going to be what we call seasoned, able to handle a busy service, a busy rotation, 
uh, with a lot of patience. And that's the first time it's ever happened in my recollection that we're going to have interns who are pretty good at what they do, you know, in a couple of months because of the volume we're seeing. So I'm curious to see how even that turns out. But yeah, I'm a huge Fauci fan. His his humbleness and his humor and his frankness, I just love. All right. So let's talk about some favorite things that Jess had, because I think you had quite a few and you, you picked on one of the probably the most, I think, highest yield pearl session. Yeah. So I will, um, and maybe, you know, Chris, hopefully you can share a few pearls from this session too, because I know you were there. So we um, both attended the Choosing Wisely campaign. And just to give credit where credit is due, I'll, I'll, I'll attempt to say everyone's names. This was put on by Dr. Lee, Dr. Holmes, Dr. Shondelmeyer, Dr. Chu, Dr. Song, uh, Dr. Raj uh, Havari, Dr. Alvarez, and Dr. Locious. I'm sure I butchered some of those names, but this was just a phenomenal session that, you know, they had put a lot of work into going through the research of, of some of the top pearls um, and really, you know, a lot of the things we do in pediatrics uh, for no reason. And so the effort uh, or the goal of these next things we're going to talk about is really improving high quality patient care and then, um, you know, reducing hospital costs. And I think, you know, a lot lot of these, uh, and I'm curious to hear what Tony and Chris think, because you guys have been in practice for longer than I have, but, you know, a lot of these are, are big changes. Um, you know, there's a lot in medicine we've done a certain way for many, many years. So I think, uh, you know, I'll just jump right in. But one of the first pearls from the Choosing Wisely campaign is do not prescribe IV antibiotics for predetermined durations for patients hospitalized with infections, such as pyelonephritis, osteomyelitis, and complicated pneumonia. You know, the thought behind this pearl was really just encouraging clinicians to consider early transition to oral antibiotics. And a lot of the antibiotic regimens we have in pediatrics are not really evidence-based. They're more cultural or institutional um, or, you know, maybe expert opinion, but they sort of ignore the clinical response of the patient. And there has become, you know, more and more evidence showing that uh, it is often safe to switch to oral antibiotics, you know, once you see improvement clinically and then, you know, plan for a shorter course. And, you know, all of these things led to, you know, decreased adverse events, less pain for kids, shorter hospitalizations, and, and decreased healthcare costs. So I thought that was uh, one that I will have to, you know, really start implementing in my practice, um, especially with those key infections, pyelonephritis, osteomyelitis, and complicated pneumonia, where the, where the evidence was uh, pretty robust. Yeah, Jess, well, Thanks for sharing that first recommendation. I, I guess this seems to be like the, you know, besides the, you know, being much better about uh, stewards for antibiotics, and there seems to be this whole push, especially even in, an, in the adult world, about trying to get to these oral antibiotics, that IV antibiotics aren't always the answer, even whether it's osteomyelitis, whether it's endocarditis. Um, did you have any thoughts on this, Tony? Yeah, this this has been a push in pediatrics for a while now, and it's been on their Choosing Wisely campaign for a while. I think when I first started, osteomyelitis was all pick line and IV antibiotics for two to three weeks, four weeks. And then the research started coming out that there's more complications and there's help. You can switch to early antibiotics. I think some of the first data came out of Europe, I want to say Finland, and then it progressed from there. And now it's very regional from the data I've seen. And this is where those FIS database studies really come in handy where they have those, those large uh, retrospective reviews from those big databases where they show different places are doing different things and there's no real standardization. I think a lot of people now have switched to early transition to oral antibiotics for osteomyelitis. 
complicated pneumonia, I think it's still somewhat the Wild West. People are doing different things. Like at our institution, I know if we see a response to IV antibiotics, we'll switch. And the question is always if it's complicated, is there loculations, is there infusion that has to be drained, or will it respond well to antibiotics? And then for pyelonephritis, we've done the same thing where, and again, I've seen the data that it, everyone is doing different stuff. Some people will still do longer courses of IV antibiotics. And it's funny, it's always either three days, seven days, 10 days, or 14 days, which are like the magic numbers in medicine, right? Everything's three, seven, 10, and 14, whenever you look at it. And for no apparent reason, except that's what we use for everything. Uh, but we, once we, in Pittsburgh, what we'll do is once you see a, a response from the patient, the pilo, even young, as long as they're doing better and there's no clear, no systemic signs, patient's not septic, you can then transition to oral antibiotics. But I think the goal, their goal is try to get everyone on the same page, which I give them a lot of credit for. I, I, I kind of give the analogy, it's like herding cats, trying to get all physicians all over the country on the same page. It's a, it's a monumental task, but they're, they're going at it. Any thoughts, Becca? Yeah, no, I think the law of five and 10 is like what I've heard. And like seven, if you prescribe antibiotics for like six days or nine days, like people are going to look at you so weird. <laughs> and But then if you're like, oh, should we, I think we should do seven days versus 10 days. People are like, oh, either, you know? Um, so it's just, it's, it's one of those things we, we have um, such like strong feelings about that really I think it's great to have some like guidance around because this is definitely something that the longer you have someone on antibiotics, regardless of what they are, the more exposure to risk in addition to benefit potentially. So, And as a side note, I don't know if anyone's ever read Paul Sachs's ID blog. So he has this great, uh, gosh, it's got to be at least half a decade old now, uh, but he's got a great uh, blog submission where he's talking about, um, as an ID doctor, how, how they chose the numbers. And it's it's amazing. I'll, I'll share it with everyone at one point, and uh, we can then cut this out of the episode <laughs> or put in the show notes so people yeah. can enjoy. <laughs> All right, Jess, you want to go on to recommendation number two? Yeah, recommendation number two is do not continue hospitalization in well-appearing febrile infants once bacterial cultures, so blood, CSF, and or urine have been confirmed negative for 24 to 36 hours, if adequate outpatient follow-up can be assured. So I think this is something we've, you know, we've talked about actually on the show, and and I think we've, you know, been thinking about in pediatrics for a while. But um, like Tony said, actually, with our last recommendation, I, I don't know if this is something that is uh, super standardized. I feel like even within our group, some people will, you know, keep kids for a full 48 hours and others feel more comfortable in that 24 to 36 hour time period. Um, you know, one thing I'll, I'll have to pull the study for the show notes because I, I don't remember the, the exact study, but I do remember the numbers that 96% of pathogen cultures are positive by 24 hours and 100% by 36 hours, according to, you know, one of the larger studies. Uh, looking at this. So I, I think that's really reassuring that probably we can be sending these well-appearing kids home early, especially if they're going to follow up with their with their pediatrician. Tony or Chris, do you have anything to add to that? No, no. It, it was what I really liked about this one was they, they really, as with all of them, they really showed the evidence. I mean, that's the important thing. You know, you can make the recommendation, but you have to convince me that this is true. And they really brought the evidence on this one in terms of both that you know when cultures are going to be positive and the fact that there's actually no real change in outcome by getting them home earlier so i thought those were great tony 
No, I mean, the, the, again, these are things they've been pushing for in the Choosing Wisely campaign for a while. It's been talked about a lot in pediatrics. Uh, we currently, most of our group does it, but again, everyone does different things. And, you know, I think, I don't know if they talked about it or not, but one of the issues we always have is when cultures come back after 36 hours, like they were saying, almost always contaminants, which the, the level of contaminant cultures is always high. But yeah, I I think it's a great, I think it's great. And if we can get everybody on board, I will say more people are doing it in the past two years than have been doing it in the past. So I think we're getting better. I think one of the studies showed it was a retrospective study. Only 2% of the blood cultures were positive with an incidence rate of true bacteremia of 0.57 in 1000 full-term infants. So <laughs> these are just like boggling my numbers and honestly gives me a lot more reassurance. The 48-hour rule out may not be something that our, our learners hear about in a couple of years. Maybe you won't even know the phrase, which is Hopefully kind of exciting. Not. Yeah. Hopefully not. Hopefully not. Do we want to move on to recommendation number three? Yeah. So the next recommendation is do not initiate phototherapy in term or late preterm well-appearing infants with neonatal hyperbilirubinemia if their bilirubin is below levels at which the AAP guidelines recommend treatment. So I, I thought this was this was really interesting. And one other caveat I want to say is um, I heard several times during the conference that we're going to get new AAP hyperbilirubinemia guidelines coming out. Um, you know, either later this year or early, early 2022. 20, uh, so definitely be on the lookout for that. But I think probably during this session, the sort of the most interesting thing for me, and I'm not sure if I, if I fully realized how high this number was, but, you know, the vast majority of confirmed cases of cornicturis um, have an average bilirubin level of 40, which is so much higher than when we, you know, talk about doing treatment. So, I guess, you know, even within the nomogram, there's there's a pretty big grace period, which I, I'm not sure if I realized before. Um, Tony, do you want to talk a little bit more about this recommendation? I will tell you to your comment about they keep, they said maybe next year or the year or this uh, winter or next year. They said that for years for the febrile neonate guideline. So I wouldn't be surprised if it's a little bit longer. But this is another one. We, we see this a lot. And it's one of those, uh, I guess I call them like duh, duh recommendations. If the AAP is rec not recommending you treat, you probably shouldn't treat. The, the issue in practical experience for me that that happens is the, the child is in the ER, they start them on phototherapy, they bring them up and they're on phototherapy, and the residents are like, well, he's already under the lights. It's only another hour or so before we check the billy level. And that, so it, it's, a, it's one of those guidelines where we have to work with our ED colleagues well, but... I, I saw the same numbers in terms of connectors. They're super high. I don't think it's as, it's as concerning. Most of the time we're seeing them, it's breastfeeding jaundice, and there just needs to be a little bit of conversation about hydration, maybe IV fluids, and the child will do well. I think this is another one where we're getting better, but they just kind of want to push us to get better faster, which I agree with because, of, you know, their whole philosophy is less may be more, which is true in this case. I think uh, another takeaway I got was not only is the risk of cornicteris really low and otherwise healthy in term, healthy term and late preterm newborns, but also cerebral palsy as well. So I think looking at that together and then understanding that subthreshold phototherapy really leads to all this unnecessary hospitalization. Therefore, we all know hospitalization then adds to costs, adds to other harms that we may not be aware of. So... Um, I think this also ties in a little bit to one of the articles that we talked about because we, we also talked about Billy in one of the, the, the top uh, 10-ish articles. 
terms of looking at Delta TSB. So I would encourage everyone to check out that that episode after this if they are interested and understand what that's all about. All right, let's move on to recommendation number four. Do not use broad-spectrum antibiotics such as ceftriaxone for children hospitalized with uncomplicated community-acquired pneumonia. Use narrow-spectrum antibiotics such as penicillin, ampicillin, or amoxicillin. I love this recommendation. I think actually pediatricians do a pretty good job of this, and I I hate to blame (laughs) colleagues, but a lot of times they get that first dose of ceftriaxone down in the emergency room, and then I think, uh, (laughs) you know, there's the decision of, you know, are we going to continue the same antibiotic, or, you know, should we just start them, you know, switch them over to ampicillin? Um, I'm I'm curious to hear what your guys' thoughts are on that. So I'll I'll tell you, I have the same experience. Um, we are pretty good on sw- making sure they're on ampicillin or even amoxicillin. The child can take oral and they're not, and they're doing fine. Otherwise, uh, we've had conversations with our ER and this is where partnership really helps when you work with the ER and you go through the data together, they've seen the data. And then, you know, if there's educational conferences that have to be had, you have them, you can get this number down and it's antibiotic stewardship, right? We really don't want our antibiotics to become unhelpful for things like strep pneumonia, et cetera, because the next generation may have very few choices. Because it's not like vaccines where we've now figured out how to make a new vaccine, something we've never seen before within a year. There's not a whole lot of antibiotics in the pipeline that are going to help us when things get more resistant. So I think this one's very important. And I do think we're doing a pretty good job. I think what we need to do is partner better with our ER colleagues, figure out where the issue is, because you're right, they'll get a dose or they'll get a dose from the outside hospital when they're being transferred in, and they just want to give the child something to make sure the child's safe. They are not may not be totally sure what's going on. So then again, you can't blame them, but that's an, another opportunity for outreach, another opportunity for QI work. So I think, I think we'll get this down. Agreed. Agreed. A lot of these recommendations, I mean, they're all about IV antibiotics, right? It's about our ability to do them well and appropriately. So... I mean, I think even the last one's about antibiotics. Is that right, Jess? It is, yeah. And I think, like you said, Chris, you know, a lot of it is, I think we treat ourselves more than we treat the patient. <laughs> um, and, you know, we're nervous. And so we we think IV antibiotics are, are better um, rather than just watching and waiting. So that's what this next recommendation is, is sort of about. So do not start IV antibiotic therapy on well-appearing newborn infants with isolated risk factors for sepsis, such as maternal chorioamnionitis, prolonged rupture of membranes, or untreated group B strep uh, colonization. The recommendation also says to use clinical tools such as an evidence-based sepsis risk calculator to guide management. I know, Chris, you talked actually about the sepsis risk calculator uh, on on our last episode. Can you tell us a little bit a uh, little bit more about that? Yeah, so it was brought up a little bit during our articles talk, but after hearing both talks, uh, I, I actually talked to my residents, you know, because I don't do newborn anymore. And so they're like, yes, we do an early onset sepsis calculator, and they, they do them for their babies routinely. Um, and it's something that makes a lot of sense. And I think it shows that these calculators are, are evidence-based, and they can really reduce the amount of antibiotics that we use. So has anyone had any uh, experience with these calculators? I mean, I've used them. I, and what's interesting to me, Chris, is when I first started training, and again, I hate saying that because it just dictates my, it tells everyone how old I am, <laughs> but I've already done that. So why not? But when I first started training, we didn't have them. And we had like, we used to use CBC and IT ratio and maybe CRP for a while. And then we would give antibiotics. 
things have just drastically changed to where you can more accurately predict if you're if the child in front of you is likely to have sepsis or not whether they need antibiotics or not. And I, I think it's one of those things where the big, inst- like I think it was started in Kaiser Permanente, their group did it first. And I know Rusty McCullough, out, who's out in Nebraska now, did some research on this as well. And, and it, be, it started pushing out to the bigger institutions and now it's trickling down to the smaller institutions. But this is another one. I think within five, 10 years, almost everyone will be doing this and we'll be doing it regularly. I just think we need to get the word out a bit more, but it's just remarkable how much things have improved. During the I'm session, l- oh, sorry, Becca. Uh, during the session, they, you know, I, I they said that the sepsis calculator has actually reduced antibiotic use by fifty percent uh, or more, and um, they actually haven't seen any increasing risk of early onset sepsis. So I think that was those were pretty powerful numbers for me. Yeah. I just linked it um, in the show notes, and just playing around with it, I think my favorite thing about it is like you enter in all this like data, right, and then the most kind of important thing is like even with all the data it has you sort of decide whether they're well appearing equivocal or whether they're ill and i think that what it often does come down to when we're making these decisions is like how does the kid in front of you look and how worried are are you and it's nice that there's still that like clinical gestalt part at the end even though the calculator is still there so it's kind of seems like the best of both worlds you know some reassurance and then also some choices it gives me hope that we won't be replaced by IBM's Watson anytime soon, right? You still need a physician at the bedside looking at the kid and saying, he doesn't look good or she doesn't look good. Or, wow, this kid's fine. There's nothing wrong with this child. You're, I think you're always going to need that until the technology gets better. Any other comments on these first five recommendations for choosing wisely? Now, you know, so they had more than five. I mean, so they had like a top 10 and even noteworthy suggestions. Jess, were there, were there any ones of the next, uh, I don't know how many, like 15 total that you thought were interesting that you wanted to share with people? Man, I, I mean, they all feel very high yield and relevant to practice. So I, I would actually just encourage uh, listeners to go out and, you know, we'll make sure we'll put them in the show notes, but I would encourage them to go read through these and, and read through the evidence themselves, actually. I, I think it, they're all, they all come along with a lot of compelling uh, reasons for making these recommendations. So I, I think we can move on to it, to our next topic, but definitely encourage our listeners to... To read. I want to get my favorite one. Okay. <laughs> it's, do not continue routinely use azithromycin for hospitalized patients with community acquired pneumonia because big azithromycins out there, man. And I feel ev- they, they have the best. Everyone asks for their Z pack and whatever. Like I, I it's it's my most hated <laughs> antibiotic. So I I love this one. <laughs> All right. I think we should move on. I think Becca wanted to talk about one of the plenaries as well. Oh, yeah. So um, I, I was fortunate enough to be able to attend not the whole plenary, but a good portion of the plenary um, on it was Thursday on um, structural racism and medicine moving from awareness to action with Dr. Um, Nathan Shamilo. And um, I thought this was just a really, really well done plenary. There was so much data and then just also so many recommendations, which I think is um, really like the most helpful part of any kind of plenary conferences. Like, what are our takeaways? How are we going to sort of change our practice moving forward? And, you know, he started with a really wonderful definition of what racism is, which unfortunately, you know, I think that that's still pretty important to kind of set the, the groundwork because I think we do see a lot of sort of confusion about like what sort of structural racism is, whether it's just 
bias or, you know, I think people get confused. So it was really nice to sort of start with a foundation of shared understanding. So he defined racism um, in a quote by Dr. Um, Kamara Jones, um, saying it's a system of structuring opportunity and assigning value based on the social interpretation of how one looks, which is what we call race, that unfairly disadvantages some individuals and communities, unfairly advantages others, other individuals and communities, and saps the strength of the whole society through the waste of human resources. So I thought that was a really powerful shared definition to kind of begin with. Yeah, I, I really, I, I thought this was just an excellent plenary as well. I mean, the, the, the other title that he had on his slides for, for his talk was also Racism as a Pediatric Public Health Crisis. And I thought it just, it really, it resonated with me that we really have to look at this. This is a public health crisis. This isn't just like something that's out there. It, this is affecting all our patients immediately. And the fact that his, his talk was more than just, it's out there, which I think we've had to do for a long time because I think there are still people who don't believe that structural racism exists, unfortunately. But also, how can we do? What can we do next? I mean, the fact that we have actionable items that he has suggestions and resources. I thought that was one of my favorite parts of his talk. He he talked even talked a little bit about like how racial identities like formed in early childhood too, right? That was so awesome. And and actually, it's something I think we've been talking about a lot as the Cribsiders team and kind of how do we do. As primary care doctors, how do we do anticipatory guidance and talk to families about race, about racism, about racial identity? And I really liked, um, you know, he talked a lot about the role of pediatricians in speaking with children around racial identity and racism at all ages. And he really stressed, like, the importance of talking about it, especially in early childhood. My key takeaway was, like, kids are never too young to talk about race um, because racial identity forms in early childhood. You know, kids you know, as young as toddlers are sort of experiencing um, sort of a discovering understanding of what race means in the world and how it affects them and their families and how it maybe affects play at school or, or whatever sort of communities they're in. Um, and I thought that the other really great takeaway for, for me was just sort of how to help parents and then sort of by extension, how to help pediatricians and educators address ra racial bias was like, really how to take it seriously. Um, so he says, like, you know, make sure that it's not like a one-time conversation. It should be something like, you know, parents or, or trusted adults are talking about continuously over time. Um, and then five tips to kind of how to talk about it is like, don't shush kids. Like, don't make them feel like it's something they shouldn't talk about or can't talk about. Don't dumb it down. So, you know, kids are really smart and very perceptive and, and helping them, you know, like being nuanced and and real with them is helpful. Do take it seriously. So if your kid is experiencing something or has questions, you know, really answer them with integrity. Do encourage complex thinking. And then five, you know, really take it as your mission to create active anti-racist um, parents. As and then I think by extension, pediatricians, like we really do have a role in sort of shaping the culture and and providing this kind of important education. So I think. It was a really powerful um, sort of specific takeaways of, of sort of how to sort of how to address this in visits or, you know, with children in your life. Um, I think it's something that we definitely have interest in the Cribsiders team and sort of how do we do anticipatory guidance around experiences of racism and then sort of noticing racism in the world is something I think our team is interested in kind of figuring out how to how to do more education around. I agree. So, I mean, helping 
develop race conscious children makes a lot of sense. And and I especially like that last point that you have there is is creating them to be active anti-racist because racism is a passive thing, but you have to be active. And this is how we're going to, the only way we're going to combat this is by creating anti-racist. And what does that mean? I mean, he had like lots of great resources. I mean, those, those five tips, he, I think he cited on his slide was from Winkler from 2009, children are not colorblind, how young children learn race. But he also had like tons of other resources, especially for parents. Um, he's got some great websites. So teaching tolerance at tolerance.org, raising race conscious children at raceconscious.org, embrace race at embracerace.org. I think we'll list all these in our show notes, hopefully, and then people will be able to get to those. Um, but he also had like a great list of, I think he just called him Dr. Nate's like reading list. Um, see if I can pull that up. I have I'm it right to remember here. Some of it's like anti-bias education for, for young children and ourselves by Louise Sturman Sparks and Julie Olson Edwards. Also how to be an anti-racist by Ibram X. Kendo and medical apartheid by Harriet Washington. The last of which is like probably one of my most formative books I've ever read really helped me have a greater context for where we are at with medicine and the U.S. and the history of racism within it. And, you know, How to Be an Anti-Racist, that's, uh, that's a book that's I'm, I'm going to read very soon. My wife is finishing reading it now, and she keeps on telling me all these parts about it and educating. And so I'm really excited to be able to read that book and have a further discussion with her and, and how to have these discussions with our children. I, I finished that book a while ago. In our division, we developed a book club around diversity and inclusion early on last year. Uh, spearheaded by Andy McCormick. And we've gone through Ibram X. Kendi's book, uh, How to Be Anti-Racist. And I can tell you, for me, what I took from the talk from the plenary is in order to have these conversations with kids, uh, whether it's our kids or patients or even our own colleagues, we have to be educated on the issues and how systemic racism directly affects people of color in many, many different ways. And the only way to do that is spend the time doing that. And that's really one of the things I took is, you know, we have to continue having these lectures, reading books on our own, uh, continuing to march down this path. And then even with our own kids at home or close family kids, like whether it's nieces and nephews or cousins or just neighbors, finding uh, books by authors who don't look like you and letting them tell their stories, whether Native American or whether they're Asian Pacific Islander or whether they are uh, African American, hearing their stories. That's one of the things we've been doing. At our, and by, again, by we, my wife has been doing this uh, at our home and finding these books and reading them to our kids. And, and it brings up a whole different discussion because the kids ask questions and it, and it allows you to bring this up in a natural way. I really loved his talk. I agree with everything, everything you said, Becca. Awesome. What I want to do now is I want to go to Jess and Becca and give their hot takes on some of their favorite sessions. So let's start with Jess. What, what were some of your hot takes from some of the sessions that you saw? Yeah, man, that's hard. There's so many great sessions. I feel like we could sit here for hours. But um, I think one of my favorite sessions, just because it was so useful for me as a new uh, pediatric hospitalist, is uh, the session on tubes, temps, Brady's, and other issues with late preterm babies. So I'll be honest, I came out of residency feeling a little bit unprepared to take care of newborns. Um, most of my experience had been in the NICU and, um, you know, all of a sudden I was rounding on on well babies and 
there's a lot of variation. And I, I, I feel like this session really went through just some of the high yield parts of uh, caring for late preterm. And I think some of this crosses over too to early, early term babies. So I think, you know, one thing they talked about is the number of preterm births is increasing in the United States. Um, there's kind of a set of predictable complications that we see in late preterm infants, thermoregulation, respiratory distress, hypoglycemia, hyperbilirubinemia. With the hyperbilly, I, um, you know, I think it's always important to remember that that late preterm babies often have a late peak in their billies, so it can be kind of five to seven days. I thought that was an important reminder, you know, when taking care of this population. Uh, we also know late preterm infants are at higher risk of apnea, bradycardia, desaturations, um, infection, sepsis. But I think the most useful part of this session was was they just talked a lot about the feeding issues that that go along with late preterm babies. So. A lot of our hospitals are using these baby-friendly guidelines, and those those really apply to healthy-term infants, um, and you know may not always work for um, our late preterm babies uh, who are maybe struggling to to breastfeed. Um, and so I just thought that was um, a good reminder. And you know they gave some specific recommendations on you know when you want to think about supplementation with donor breast milk or. Uh, you know, express maternal breast milk or, or or even formula. And I think because we're we're running out of time, I'll just very quickly go through the you know some of their tips for setting families up for for breastfeeding success, which I think is important for for all babies, whether they're late late preterm or, or term infants. But um, they talked about the importance of skin to skin right after delivery, and then also um, you know doing skin to skin pretty frequently. Um, and, and I think our nurses are really good at reminding families that, but it's, that was something that I just need to, you know, to remember to talk to families about. Um, they recommend that moms hand express within the first hour, which can be challenging after, you know, after a delivery, but, um, you know, if they're able to do that, that can, uh, set them up for success breastfeeding later. Um, it's very important. They room in with mom, um, encourage kangaroo care, and then, you know, get your lactation consultants involved uh, early and often. So uh, that was kind of a quick, <laughs> quick overview, but it was an awesome session. And I think very useful for me as a, a newer hospitalist and hopefully for, you know, for some of our trainees who are just starting to, to take care of newborn babies. Those are great pearls. Becca, yeah. what, what did you come away from? from? Yeah, um, no, those are definitely great pearls for me. Um, I also am like a little scared of babies <laughs> to be honest I'm like you're so little I don't want to break you um so I went to a, a I went to some really great sessions I think two of the ones that I really enjoyed were about topics that I feel like aren't as commonly discussed in sort of the bread and butter of pediatric hospital medicine so one of the ones that I went to was um called O cramps pelvic pain um in the um, adolescent female um and so I thought that was just like really nice to kind of get an overview of some of the common causes of abnormal uterine bleeding and pelvic pain in um, patients that menstruate. Some high yield um, things that I took away were one, um, just kind of a, a brief review of PID. Um, just remembering that it is, so this pelvic inflammatory disease, remembering that it really is a clinical diagnosis. So PID is an ascending infection of the upper reproductive structures, and it's really only diagnosed by cervical motion tenderness or uterine tenderness, or adnexal tenderness. And they gave the good reminder that it's not always gonorrhea or chlamydia, which is like absolutely true and something that 
you know, I feel like often we're like, oh, let's just get a GC chlamydia. And it's not always one of those um, bugs. They said, you know, a negative test for GC chlamydia, even though they're common causes, it doesn't rule it out because it could be Gardnerella vaginalis or another bacterial cause of PID. And then they also reminded me that, you know, PID can occur in patients who are not sexually active. So um, patients that are not sexually active can still have PID or TOA, um, and that in that case, it's usually polymicrobial, and it can be associated with urologic or GI condition, as well as sometimes uterine or vaginal anomalies. Um, so I thought that was a really helpful kind of refresh. And then the other thing that I really liked about this talk was that they talked about indications for an internal GU exam. I feel like this is often something that in the hospital we're like, do we need to do an internal GU exam? And it can be hard in the hospitalist setting because um, you need to do good care and you need to do exams when you need to, but it's also you're usually meeting a patient for the first time. It can be a very stressful environment. So they spoke about how the specific indications for a biomanual exam would be um, if you need to sort of evaluate for cervical motion tenderness, if you need to evaluate for mass or endometriomas or abnormal uterine bleeding if they're sexually active. Um, so those are really the only indications for the need to do it by manual exam. And then they spoke about how there's rarely a need to do a speculum exam, which I really loved because, again, I think this is a very private exam and it can be very challenging to do in the hospitalized setting. So they said you really, really rarely need to do a speculum exam. Sometimes you'll need it to do due to urine tests and ability to use swab. Um, sometimes you'll need to do it if you need to check if an IUD is in place or persistent vaginal bleeding. But um, they gave a good reminder, you do not need to do it before starting an OCP. And just always think about whether you need to do it and make sure that you're you're doing good care, but you're not doing sensitive care that's that's not medically necessary in your hospitalized teenage patient. So I thought that was a really great one. The other one that I just really loved, and I I only caught the tail end, which I was so sad because I really wanted to go to this one, was dentistry for the pediatric hospitalist because my partner always makes fun of me. She's like, why do you guys know nothing about teeth? And it's such a good, like, it's it's like absolutely one of the things that like things we do for no reason, like dentistry and, and medicine being separate fields. Um, it really makes no sense. So it was really awesome. We had um, this talk by, um, by, uh, and we could ask like any questions of the pediatric dentists that were on the panel. And so one thing that I um, learned about was a tooth avulsion. So this is when a tooth is completely out of its socket. Um, that means the periodontal ligament is severed and the alveolus could be fractured. Um, so there's totally different management, um, whether it's a primary tooth or a permanent tooth, which is pretty cool. So for primary tooth, you just kind of observe for healing. Um, space loss can occur, so you might have like some crowding, um, but don't put the tooth back. So if you've got a little kid and it's their like primary tooth, you don't need to do really much. But if it's a permanent tooth, like you should definitely be concerned. <laughs> um, so um, basically they have some like really great um, guidelines. So you should find the tooth, which I thought was a hilarious first um, step, but find the tooth that's been avulsed, um, rinse it, but don't scrub it and don't touch the root. Um, and then put it gently back into the socket. Um, they said it's okay if it sticks out a little. Um, you can have the kid hold it on their tongue if you're worried that the kid will swallow it, like for whatever reason, um, that's, it's not safe for them to have it in their mouth. You can put it in cold milk or you can have a kid drool in a cup 
and put it in the cup with drool which is just totally wild. I was like, this is the best thing ever. I tweeted about it. Um, (laughs) Don't put it in water. That was one thing I learned, um, which I definitely would not have thought. Um, And then basically the most important thing is getting the tooth kind of back in the mouth and then going straight to the dentist or ER because um, really time matters. Time is tooth. (laughs) So I got to go to this. I got to go to this one too. And I, I wanted to go to it because my, my wife is a trained bioarchaeologist and her, her interest is in, uh, in dental wear. And so she always knows all this stuff about teeth that I can never remember. But, um, <laughs> well, that's the reason why I went to it. But, you know, one thing I found also interesting when they're talking about that Vol's permanent tooth and where to put it if it's not cold milk or drool is that, you know, some of them said that, you know, if it's like a little league game or something, sometimes they have like stores of like Hartman's solution or something like that, that they can put their, their teeth in. So maybe consider asking about that if you're at a little league game and someone loses their tooth or something. <laughs> so that was one of the pearls that I got. Um, so I'm going to hit some of my, my favorite quick hits. Um, as we alluded to earlier, it was more than sessions and plenaries. They're, they're like workshops at this thing. And my favorite workshop that I went to was the MedEd Portal Submission in a Day. So apparently they've done a bunch of these like submission in a day workshops, but MedEd Portal is one of the, these, these portals that has, is really considered a peer-reviewed source, but is this place where um, a lot of different things are on. And actually, I have to pull it up. Um, but one of the things that was, was interesting to, to me, so what can you submit to MedEd Portal is including training curricula and workshops, small and large simulation exercises, team-based learning materials, standardized patient learning experiences, and assessment tools. And I thought it was really interesting because I'd always, like, people have been telling me, Chris, you just developed this whole social media curriculum for, for the residency. You need to put it on MedEd Portal. And I'm like, I, I don't even know where to start. And so this workshop was amazing because it helped us walk through, like, the submission process, what are the things you, you need to have to fill out. And so I, I really enjoyed that. So I want to make a big plug for that. And if you're at PHM in the future and they do this again, people should check it out. And one other session that, that I went to that we haven't talked about yet was the pediatric POCUS session with doctors Rhea Denzel and Aaron Flynn and John Stevens. People might know that I'm, I'm a, a POCUS convert and definitely I, I, use it, I try to use it as much as I can, but I see a lot more adults. So I really want to you know get a refresher, look at, see how we're using in the pediatric side and I think one of the interesting things that Dr. Dancel talked about was that she really doesn't do a lot of between her adults and peds is not a huge difference for her because she's looking at the same things. You know, you're not looking for like, you know, all these other strange things like from, from heart, you're just doing a cardiac pocus, lung pocus, soft tissue pocus. And um, I thought that was a really fantastic session. So um, I'm still a convert to Pocus. I don't know. Tony, are, are you a Pocus guy? Do you do you do it in your practice? I, I do not. Our division's starting to get into it. One of our fellows really wanted to do uh, a whole rotation on it and really kind of get experience in it. I don't use it much in pediatrics at all. Our ER does a lot. By the time they get to us, it's been done. But I agree that it's something we should do more. It's something I'd like to learn. Jess, what, what, what are you guys doing in, in your groups? Yeah, so we definitely have a few people that are that are really excited, especially I, I think a lot of them are MedPeds folks who've used it first on, you know, on the adult side and are, are starting to, to do some studies in, in kids. But our, our ER uses it all the time. And, you know, we have this awesome rotation and curriculum that is being developed for our residents, which is really great. So I do think POCUS is kind of the way of the future and we should all 
kind of jump on board. Um, you know, I've been debating if I should get a handheld ultrasound because I think that would really allow me to practice a lot more. I don't know. Do any of you guys have a have one of those? I might have one, and I might have another one on the way. So I'm not going to say any any uh, any names for uh, different products, but I think it was just it's great to see that you know that we have great sessions like this that. They even brought out studies showing how POCUS can be more sensitive and, and specific compared to other diagnostic modalities. Also, reduction of radiation, especially in our pediatric populations. Um, the ability to not only get the test done quickly, but also can do subsequent follow-up tests. I think there's a lot of great positives to that. So just another plug for POCUS. And then last, I just want to, you know, I want to go to do a round robin. Were, were there any FOMO sessions that people had? Because Definitely Beers with Fauci was one that was in the evening that I really wish I had gone to, but I missed. I I didn't get to listen to all the PHM stories. And then one that I actually heard on Tony's, one of Tony's uh, highlights episodes was the Don't Bloat Your Note workshop, which sounds amazing because I've, I'm constantly trying to tone down my notes, but it's all about teaching our, our learners how to keep their notes from being bloated. And I thought that was really interesting. Did anyone have any FOMO sessions? I, I wanted to get to the pediatric cardiology for the hospitalist one. That one I did not get to. And someone on my podcast went to it and said it was really good. And then I didn't get to the med ed portal one that you went to, Chris, and I want to get to that one. So those are two I'm going to watch. And so, Tony, for PHM, they, they're able to go back and to, to rewatch any of these that were recorded, right? Yeah, up For up to 90 days after the conference, you can go back and watch any of them that were recorded. The workshops were also recorded. But the small group breakout sessions within the workshops were not recorded. So you'd get the before and after, just not the middle uh, breakouts. So you should be able to go back to the same website using the same login and watch those videos. And I think they'll be, those are, most of them are uploaded now, but within the next couple of days, they'll all be uploaded. Awesome. Well, I'm going to do one more round, and I'm going to ask everyone for their favorite takeaway pearl from the conference. So... Our esteemed guest host, Tony, do you want to go first? Oh, God. One thing I took away from the conference, um, Delta variant has an R-naught of 5, and the Alpha alpha, COVID, alpha SARS-CoV-2, it's, it's about 1 to 1.5. So this one's significantly more infectious. We need some lighthearted ones. Jess, Becca? Okay. Well, mine's not really a clinical pearl, but I will just say um, this was actually one of my first uh, – conferences, definitely my first virtual conference, but first conferences, uh, you know, as faculty. And I was just overwhelmed by the amount of camaraderie and support. I went to some of the, you know, new um, kind of new faculty, new hospitalist sessions. And I, I just, uh, I found them really comforting uh, to help with my imposter syndrome and and very inspiring for the work that everyone's doing and, and kind of work I hope to do in the future. So I would encourage everyone, if you have a chance to check out um, a, a national conference in the next year, PHM 2022, maybe, um, I would definitely recommend recommend that you go. Becca? Well, aside from the tooth and milk, um, which I'll just never be able to forget, um, I, I, but more for real, um, I, I really appreciated you bringing up the Choosing Wisely campaign, Jess, because I think that, you know, as a new intern, it's really overwhelming to kind of like think about like, how what do I do in every situation? Like, it's not rote at this point. It's all like truly a question of like, where do I look this up? What do I do in every single new clinical situation? Because I, you know, it's just everything's new. And so I, I remember this resource from med school. So I'm really excited to kind of take some time and go through like all of the recommendations that they made. And I think that these will be really helpful, like on my next inpatient rotation later this fall, couple months of awards. 
Pete's Awards back to back. So I'm I'm really appreciative that you brought this um, to the episode, and I'm excited to take a deeper dive into it. Awesome. All right, before we go, Tony, do you have anything you'd like to plug for our audience to to check out? I mean, please check out our podcast at PHM from Pittsburgh. If you if you haven't watched PHM 21 uh, and you need CME credit and you want to kind of get updated on what's going on, I would suggest you do it. I went to the conference. They're not paying me to say this to you. Uh, I really thought it was one of the best virtual conferences I've been to all year in terms of content and flow and even the camaraderie like Jessica was talking about. But other than that, that's all I got. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you. I want to thank you guys for letting me come on the show. I really enjoyed it. I had a wonderful time. Thank you very much. This has been another episode of The Cribsiders. It's for the kids. <laughs> Get show notes <laughs> and sign up for our weekly knowledge food formula feeds newsletter on our website at www.thecribsiders.com. We're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, or contact us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our super producer for this episode and for organizing our PHM collaboration, Dr. Jessica Hain, and our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I've been Becca Raymond Colker. I've been Jessica Hain. I've been Tony Tarcici. And this has been Chris the Chew Manchu. Thank you. Good night. <laughs>